Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is Abby Martin. And this is Robbie Martin. Welcome, everybody. So I'm very excited to have on the program today a good friend of mine, Ryan Wentz. Ryan Wentz is a queer anti-imperialist activist based in Los Angeles. He lived in Jerusalem for six months in 2018, and he's worked with the American Friends Service Committee and Code Pink. Um, I'm very, very excited to have him on the program. Longtime fan of Media Roots Radio. I'm a big fan of his. Welcome, Ryan. Thank you to both of you. This is definitely one of my favorite podcasts of all time. And I've learned so much from from every episode dating back to like a decade ago. So thanks for having <laughs> me on. <laughs> very cool. Um, and I apologize. I'm coming off of a cold, so I sound very stuffed up. Sincere apologies. So Ryan, I'm really excited to have you on today because you had the great idea of talking about just the concept of pinkwashing um, and how it fits into, first and foremost, Israeli society, the Israel brand, and then also just how it fits into the U.S. empire, you know, U.S. militarism, and of course, with the um, candidacy of Mayor Pete, (laughs) Um, the gay Obama. So let's let's get to the nitty gritty here and kind of go over the definitions before we get into all of this of what pinkwashing is and what homo nationalism is. All right, great. Yeah, so pinkwashing, I think people are more familiar with. So I'll go over that second. But the first term that I want to talk about is homo nationalism, which was coined in 2007 by a woman named Jasbir Poir in a text called Terrorist Assemblages, Homonationalism in Queer Times. Just to, to lay these definitions out, I'm just going to read a bit from um, her text because she uh, sums it up way better than I ever could. I apologize for the long quote, but here it goes. <laughs> I argue that the Orientalist invocation of the terrorist is one discursive tactic that disaggregates U.S. national gays and queers from racial and sexual others, foregrounding a collusion between homosexuality and American nationalism that is generated both by national rhetorics of patriotic inclusion and by gay and queer subjects themselves, homonationalism. For contemporary forms of U.S. nationalism and patriotism, the production of gay and queer bodies is crucial to the deployment of nationalism, insofar as these perverse bodies reiterate heterosexuality as the norm, but also because certain domesticated homosexual bodies provide ammunition to reinforce nationalist projects. And then in 2013, uh, she released another piece called Rethinking Homonationalism, where she states that homonationalism thus is not simply a synonym for gay racism or another way to mark how gay and lesbian identities become available to conservative political imaginaries. It is not another identity politics, not another way of distinguishing good queers from bad queers, not an accusation and not a position. It is rather a facet of modernity and a historical shift marked by the entrance of some homosexual bodies as worthy of protection by nation states, a constitutive and fundamental reorientation of the relationship between the state, capitalism, and sexuality. That's amazing. So break that down in non-academic terms. It's really interesting, but I want your perception too of it. Of course. So um, the way that I see it is that 
folks in the U.S. and um, especially in the context of Israel who are LGBTQ are kind of used as pawns to deploy nationalism. And I really think that the important term that she uses is to domesticate um, certain bodies and to further the aims of nationalism and imperialism and capitalism. In uh, regards to pinkwashing, she says that, um, and this will help break it down for folks, that homo-nationalism and pinkwashing should not be seen as parallel, but rather pinkwashing is one manifestation and practice that's made possible within and because of homo-nationalism. So unlike mm. pinkwashing, homo-nationalism is not a state practice, as we see in the case of Israel and the U.S., but instead it's a historical convergence of state practices, transnational circuits of queer commodity culture and human rights paradigms, and broader global phenomena such as the increasing entrenchment of Islamophobia, which I think is one of the central tenets of pinkwashing and homo-nationalism both today um, in the context that we're going to talk about, just trying to contrast quote-unquote civilized and open societies like um, the U.S. and Israel with like Muslim majority countries. Wow, that, that's really great. Thank you for breaking down uh, the definitions because I think that they're thrown around a lot, but people don't really understand what the constructs actually mean and how they're applied. And I actually didn't really understand how pinkwashing was like centrally, thematically centered around Israel specifically. I thought it was more of just a broad concept, but really it's like fundamental to Israel's brand. Absolutely. That's really interesting. I, I didn't know that either. Did you have a chance, Ryan, to listen to our Yasha Levine interview from a couple episodes ago? Yeah, I really, really enjoyed that. And that's actually what gave me the idea to, to come on and talk about this just because of the weaponization of identity and um, how dangerous it is and how it's constantly being used to advance imperialism in all of these different contexts from, I mean, what Yasha was talking about as like a Soviet immigrant to uh, like queerness as an identity. Well, that's great. Yeah. I, f I mean, there seems to be a lot of parallels between the general concept of, uh, of homo nationalism with, with, uh, a lot of the stuff he was talking about. The last piece I'll give from this text is that she writes that Israel appears as a pioneer of homo nationalism being perfectly situated to encourage the normal normalization of some homosexual bodies in relation to an increasingly violent occupation of Palestine. Moreover, the United States is in no small part culpable for the effectiveness of Israeli pinkwashing, as it is to a large extent directed towards citizens of the United States, Israel's greatest financial supporter, and more generally to Euro-American gays who have the political capital and the financial resources to invest in Israel. That is amazing. And Ryan, you lived in Israel for six months. You studied abroad there. You know, Israel is promoted, I think, primarily today, as we've been talking about, as a haven for queer and trans people and like advertised for gay tourism from celebrities like Andy Cohen to advertisements on LGBTQ websites, dating applications. I mean, this worked with you initially. You attended the Gay Pride Parade twice, the first time earnestly um, as part of your study abroad program as a queer person. I mean, wanting to go and, and visit Israel in an earnest way before you got awakened to the atrocities on the ground and the reality of the occupation. And talk about your journey 
in conjunction with how pinkwashing has evolved in Israeli society? Yeah. Um, so yeah, in 2016, I studied abroad at Tel Aviv University, which I um, couldn't regret more um, as a, <laughs> a proponent of the BDS movement today. But yeah, back then I was very liberal and passive in how I um, engaged with these really big issues and obviously just viewed what's happening in Palestine as a conflict um, with two sides. And obviously that perspective has changed radically over the course of four years. Ryan, just really quickly, how did, how, what made you decide to study abroad at, in Tel Aviv? What, how did that decision come about in the first place? Yeah, so that was mainly because of pinkwashing. So I had heard okay. time and time again from people that, you know, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East, that um, there's it's a progressive society, in particular Tel Aviv is um, a great place where there's LGBTQ nightlife and the Pride Parade is marketed heavily on um, apps like Tinder and Grindr. Wow. And yeah, it's really disturbing that they've so successfully pulled this off. And I can definitely break down the timeline behind Brand Israel, which was the concerted effort by the Israeli government to use um, LGBTQ like tourism and this whole notion that Israel is progressive, in particular, like contrasted with, you know, Palestinians who are inherently homophobic and transphobic and so that was mainly what got me there in the first place. Um, and then I realized what was actually happening and was really disturbed by how people could carry on lives in Tel Aviv that are so, so sheltered from the brutality of the apartheid state. It's really fascinating. Break down Brand Israel. How did it evolve? Because yeah. this is something that wasn't really central you know, to Israel until relatively recently, I feel like yeah. in the last decade. Yeah. So um, in 2005, that's when the Israeli foreign ministry concluded three years of consultation with American marketing executives, and they launched Brand Israel um, to rebrand the country. So that's when it kicked off initially. But um, in 2008, there, over all of this initial couple of years, they were doing a lot of research with a bunch of different firms. And they realized that, you know, they had to organize cultural events like film festivals and food and wine festivals featuring Israel made products. And the Spotlight Tel Aviv program at the Toronto International Film Festival was created. Israel was trying to reach out to people overseas, um, not just Jewish people, but to the West in general because perception of Israel at the time was not great, um, especially coming after uh, Operation Cast Lead 2008-2009. There was a poll that was conducted, the East-West Global Nation Brand Perception Index, and Israel was 192nd out of 200 behind countries like North Korea and Cuba, which obviously in the West are constantly being smeared. Um, so that's a huge deal that Israel's perception was really lagging. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it feels like, I mean, at least for me, I'm 24 now. Um, so basically 2009, I was 14 at the time. 
And from that point on, I was constantly hearing about Israel as a haven for LGBTQ people from, from people all over. Um, and that same year, in 2009, the organization Stand With Us told the Jerusalem Post that they were undertaking a campaign to improve Israel's image through the gay community in Israel. And then the foreign ministry said that they would be sponsoring a gay Olympics delegation to, quote, wow. help, to help show to the world Israel's liberal and diverse face. So obviously this was a really, really concerted effort to change the branding. I mean, the, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs had allocated over $26 million to branding. Um, they were working with a bunch of different, you know, the Tel Aviv Tourism Board, Israel's LGBT organizations um, to launch like online branding campaigns um, to promote Israel as to promote particularly Tel Aviv as a gay capital on Facebook and Twitter. And this has really grown since then. It's amazing because it's just totally an invention. And, you know, it really is just like a complete PR operation that was hugely successful, pumped with tens of millions of dollars that transformed Israel from one of the most negatively perceived countries in the world, according to this index, you know, right after Cass led this bombing massacre of caged Palestinians to, to today, where, like you said, and I mean, I've, I've traveled recently and Israelis are constantly traveling and, and you hear this all the time that it's like, one of the most queer-friendly places in the world, and the Tel Aviv Pride Parade is something not to be missed, and everyone has to go there, and the nightlife is amazing, and it's so gay-friendly and all this stuff. It's just like, it is so concocted and bizarre, but it shows you how well something like this can work. Yeah, and even just from my own like memories, I as you're talking, Ryan, for some reason, the thing that keeps popping into my head is these images that I remember seeing over and over again for like the last 10 or 15 years of like Israeli streets, you know, like street markets or like things that look very like obviously iconically Israel, you know, with a rainbow flag, like yep. up in the up in the <laughs> corner. And like, I don't know why I saw, I've seen, seen those images so much that they're like hardwired into my brain now. So like they must have really blasted this stuff out there on so many different levels. I mean, so I'm I, that for some reason that's where my brain is going while you're talking. <laughs> no, absolutely. It's it's very concocted, manufactured. It doesn't feel genuine at all because Israel as a country is actually not LGBTQ friendly, right? Like you, gay marriage is not legal there. Wait, what? <laughs> gay marriage is not legal because the <laughs> marriage goes through the chief rabbi. Oh my God. Yeah. So, so are there like not... domestic partnerships? Is there some kind of like other legal yeah, version yeah. of a gay marriage? Okay. Yeah. But then also, um, you know, the rest of the country is not progressive at all. Like if you leave Tel Aviv, I mean, there's a reason that most queer and trans Israelis then move to Tel Aviv or leave the country because that's really the only place. I mean, and obviously it's not I'm not like supporting Tel Aviv as this haven, but if you go to like a rural part of quote unquote Israel or you go to Jerusalem, like that is not the most open place. Jerusalem has had a pride parade and they've had radical religious man stab people multiple times, the same guy at um, consecutive pride parades, I think. 
Oh my god! Yeah, I remember hearing about that. Wow. Yeah, so it's not、uh, not at all the whole country. So that's why I think they've really tried to hone in on Tel Aviv. I mean, sometimes I've seen the term like "quote unquote" gay mecca used in particular, which、mm-hmm. is especially grotesque considering how、um, Israel treats Muslims、um, and how Islamophobic Israel is just inherently. Yeah, I mean, what did you see while you were there, as you were studying abroad? Was that when you were awakened to the horrors and like the reality of what Israel really was, and like the exploitation and weaponization of LGBTQ rights? So, talk about what you saw and how your mind changed on this. Yeah, absolutely. So, I was on that Tel Aviv University program, and there were about two hundred kids, mostly from the U.S. and basically all Zionists, obviously. And we had a group me、um, with everyone in the study abroad program. And the first week, I asked folks if anyone was interested in going to a gay bar, because obviously that's what I had always heard. You know, close to the beach, there are these nightclubs, like LGBTQ nightclubs, that are unlike anywhere in the world. And I actually got removed from the group me by some like homophobic kids in the in the program. Wow. And that's when I realized, like, okay, so this place is actually <laughs> not appealing to like progressive people. And as I as I spent more time with the people on my program and in an Israeli university and being in a city as sheltered and、um, like in a bubble as Tel Aviv, I realized just how dystopian it was. You know, Tel Aviv really feels like late stage Zionism, like. You know everything is <laughs> everything is swept under the rug. Everything you know,、yeah. Gaza is just miles away. People are being starved and carpet bombed there every single day. But here in Tel Aviv, you can go to a trendy cafe that's like you know really、um, perfect for the like Instagram aesthetic. And then after that, you can like hit the beach and drink a beer, and it just feels so fake and settler colonial. And、um, then when I was there, I visited.、Uh, my dad actually came to visit, and we went to Bethlehem.、Um, and obviously, to get into Bethlehem, you have to cross a checkpoint and go through the apartheid wall. And as we were going there, we also saw some demolished homes in East Jerusalem. And that's when everything just clicked for me. And I was like, okay, so maybe Tel Aviv is this bubble, but the rest of the country. And I mean, including Tel Aviv, they've just successfully swept it under the rug. Is built on ethnic cleansing and and like dispossession of land. And so then, as I returned, I learned more and more about you know the the whole Zionist project and U.S. support of Israel, and became more and more disgusted and. Then finally returned on a solidarity program in 2018. Were you, were you aware of like just the state of the occupation? I mean, maybe not like the actual nature of how horrific it was, but did you know that there was an apartheid wall? Did you know that the West Bank was under occupation and stuff when you were studying abroad? I mean, was that talked about in your university program and stuff? Um, so I was in an Israeli politics class, and we never talked about that. We talked about everything but that. We talked about Israeli political parties and the Knesset, and all of these, you know, fluffy topics that you can talk about for 
hours and hours without ever mentioning the word apartheid. Um, but yeah, I eventually realized, learned that there was a wall and that's what motivated me to, you know, take my dad there and go into Bethlehem and actually interact with Palestinians. And, but the, the program itself, I mean, took us on one little weekend trip where we met with one Palestinian man who obviously was paid by the university to be super non-threatening and like normalizing, you know? Mm -hmm. Ryan, I was curious, the different groups and entities that are behind this effort to spread this sort of home and nationalism and pinkwashing from Israel uh, to other foreigners and other tourists. I want you to go into some of the groups that are behind that, but also first I want you to comment on where people like, and I maybe I have some false memories about this, but I seem to remember like people like Dan Savage really pushing this idea, this pinkwashing framework. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could comment on that and also what groups who are behind this, this pinkwashing propaganda, name some of those groups. And also is the group stand with us um, who actually tried to deplatform Abby with a massive smear campaign. Is that group stand with us also involved in this pinkwashing effort? Right. So um, there's one main group that I want to talk about that's particularly nefarious and it's called a wider bridge. Um, so it was founded in 2010 to, quote, provide opportunities for LGBTQ people in North America to build meaningful relationships with Israel and LGBTQ people in Israel. And its whole mission is that it's, quote unquote, for equality in Israel and for equality for Israel, whatever that means. Um, <laughs> and... And it was formed in actually response to to a massacre in 2009 at an LGBTQ youth center in Tel Aviv, um, where a gunman opened fire, killed two people and injured 15. So, yeah, I think that that actually really shows that there's a lot of problems within Israel um, regarding how LGBTQ people are treated. And this group, a wider bridge is was behind I don't know if you remember, but in 2017, there was a controversy at the Chicago Dyke March, which is like a radical kind of anti-Pride event um, that goes on around the time of the actual Pride Parade. You know, they're explicitly anti-Zionist, anti-racist, and a wider bridge was the organization that was behind this whole con quote-unquote controversy um, where they claimed that because they showed up with an Israeli pride flag, which is basically the Israeli flag just with rainbow behind it, they cried anti-Semitism. And this got so much mainstream media coverage in the U.S. And the Human Rights Campaign, which is like a neoliberal, um, quote-unquote, gay rights group that, you know, endorsed Hillary and that has awarded Raytheon with like the best place to work award. What? Yeah, so the human rights campaign has awarded Raytheon <laughs> and Jeff Bezos um, as like an outstanding like ally. Oh my um, God. And so the human rights campaign made a fuss about the Dyke March's actions, which just really shows how these liberal echo chambers weaponize um, pinkwashing 
And, you know, we've seen time and time again, like how different smears of anti-Semitism are weaponized. But this was a really notable one. And a wider bridge was was behind it. And they've used now this particular instance to make a big deal about other um, radical events in other cities that are explicitly anti-Zionist, saying that if you don't allow us to carry the Israeli pride flag around, then that's anti-Semitism. And, you know, the the Dyke March had Jewish organizers that went to go talk with the wider bridge members saying like we're not anti-semitic obviously this is a space free of anti-semitism but it's also free of zionism and a wider bridge in particular has worked with stand with us and among its major funders is the jewish federation of chicago which i think also uh donated money to canary mission so yep yeah, and Stand With Us is funded by the Israeli government and a wider bridge works with Stand With Us. And it's it's really wild to me because Stand With Us is clearly aligned with really far right actors. And I guess this, it makes a lot of sense because Israel's never concerned with these things. They say that they're concerned with anti-Semitism and then they align with anti-Semites. They say that they're concerned with homophobia and transphobia, then they align with figures from Stand With Us and Richard Spencer and other horrible people um, and organizations. And then a wider bridge was in 2014 during Protective Edge. They they threw an event, The Bay Stands With Israel, in support of the massacre in Gaza. So they, yeah, the, the whole equality in Israel, equality for Israel, ultimately ends up just being equality for Israel and this quote-unquote LGBTQ group shilling for um, an apartheid state. And, and also, Birthright has LGBTQ trips now. So, you know, just for people who want that experience inside Israel, a totally pinkwashed experience is available for those, those interested. For people who may not realize how cynical this is, I mean, the human rights campaign, I remember that being a really prolific like logo when I was in college, like speakers representing HRC at my college campus. I remember I even like at one point, I wish that this wasn't true, but I actually had like an HRC like bumper sticker on my car when I was really like indoctrinated with neoliberalism and like into amnesty international and stuff. And it's just, it's so astounding to hear that they praised Raytheon. It really fucks with my mind to actually realize how cynical that is. And also how cynical it is to like the Chicago Dyke March example, to preemptively put out the narrative for all radical queer events that if you do not embrace apartheid and Zionism wholeheartedly, then you like literally are anti-Semitic. And to put out that press flurry to like paint that narrative essentially it's a censorship campaign and like a shaming campaign where who would want to go out there and take a stand you know what i mean to to get that horrible negative press that you know is coming yep and even some people who i know are or describe themselves as radical totally fell for it and just like the smears in the labor party in the uk they end up just kind of shrugging and saying like it it's really complicated when it's really not once you realize how these smear campaigns are manufactured it's really clear how cynical and how disingenuous the people who are behind them are so 
it's yeah it's kind of a dead giveaway when a neocon like for example is talking <laughs> about how important it is to have gay rights in other countries and it, that to me is like probably the most glaring dead giveaway mm -hmm. like when paul wolfowitz for example started openly talking about how you know he wanted gay marriage or um gop mega donor paul singer started pushing gay marriage it just seems really suspicious to me they have some obviously some kind of ulterior motive for doing that but yeah that's just a comment i wanted to make yeah absolutely and they always seem to be able to use that to um contrast it with the muslims that they're so so islamophobic towards um this one part that the that poir wrote says that pinkwashing works in part by tapping into the discursive and structural circuits produced by U.S. and European crusades against the spectral threat of, quote, radical Islam or, quote, Islamofascism. So, yeah, it really, really makes sense to me why these neocons have hopped on that train, because it totally fits their narrative. And it obviously is so cynical because we know that they've supported really homophobic, transphobic policies here in the U.S., but... When it comes to foreign policy, they can use that really whenever. And then the way that these travel destinations are um, concocted are also super, super imperialist and, and neo-colonial because the tourism, the gay tourism industry is like kind of built on this distinction between gay friendly and not gay friendly. And right. all not gay friendly destinations are like places in the global south that were colonized and had homophobic, transphobic beliefs and practices like violently imposed on them. So like, right, like Christian missionaries and stuff. Yeah, exactly. And in a lot of indigenous societies, like LGBTQ people were way more were tolerated way more than under like Christian imperialist um, regimes. And I, yeah, I mean. I think that there was a big thing that happened like in India, maybe last year, where some law was repealed, um, some homophobic law was repealed, but that law was in place from the British occupation, the British colonial government. So again, it's like, who created this? And would this, would these not gay friendly places be so not gay friendly if it weren't for colonialism? Exactly. And this reminds me of this talking point that's regurgitated over and over again, not just about the queer question, but also about feminism and the weaponization of like um, identity politics in terms of being a woman. And when I talk about pro-Palestine topics or criticize Israel, I, I met with the talking point. Why don't you talk about how LGBTQ people and women are treated in Gaza? Um, and you know, when it comes to just like U S militarism in the middle East in general, like you constantly hear like, well, ISIS throws gay people off buildings. So like, where would you rather live? And like, why, why don't you focus on that? And I want to get your response to this kind of reactionary discourse that delegitimizes the people who are oppressed and also queer and non-binary people who are being marginalized by Zionism and U S militarism. Like, it completely erases them. Absolutely. Um, that's one of the most disgusting things about it. So, yeah, Israel Israel threatens um, LGBTQ Palestinians and blackmails them into becoming informants for, for um, the Israeli government and the occupation. 
And if they don't agree, then they out them to their communities. So it's it's not like Israel um, wow. really really cares about how queer and trans Palestinians are being treated, you know? And people, uh, one queer Palestinian man, I forget where I read it, but he said that, you know, like at a checkpoint, he's not seen as LGBTQ, he's seen as Palestinian. And that's really what matters um, at the end of the day to the, the apartheid state. Yeah, I mean, myself, when people find out that I'm anti-Zionist, anti-imperialist, they say go to Gaza or go to Iran, and they think that they just came back with like the ultimate comeback. Um, but it's so, so boring and unoriginal because obviously the people I'm in solidarity with are queer and trans people living um, in the crosshairs of imperialism. You know, imperialism is what's most oppressive to to the LGBTQ community, you know, like imperialist wars, bombs and occupations are not liberatory whatsoever. Um, so it's actually a really disingenuous talking point. And it's it just like is consistent with the Orientalism that those same figures come always seem to to show even when they're trying to be slick. Um, and there are like Palestinian organizations like Aswat, Alkaz, and the Palestinian Queers for BDS. Um, and these are groups that, you know, are, they face anti-LGBTQ discrimination in Palestine, but that doesn't mean we should be siding with Israel. So for instance, last year, Alkaz, which operates in the West Bank, was like their they were banned from activity in the West Bank by the Palestinian Authority. And then all of these um, Zionist figures and organizations came out being like, see, like these people are just inherently bigoted, um, blah, blah, blah. We can fight against the occupation and fight against queer and transphobia at the same time. And obviously queer and transphobia exists everywhere. And we should be ready to fight that in all forms, in all spaces. But it doesn't mean that we should fall for these ridiculous attacks made by really cynical actors who just want to empower and embolden like an apartheid state or the U.S. empire. So, yeah, it's just super, super disingenuous, but it's so common. I hear it constantly. It's like quintessential neoliberalism in general. It's like the superficial, farcical debate where you're just weaponizing and exploiting queer identity while at the same time there's no context to how any of this happens. Like, none of this happens in a vacuum. As you mentioned, a lot of South American countries being overrun and overtaken by Christian you know, theocratic regimes that were installed brutally by U.S. empire, U.S. militarism. If you look at Iran, for example, this is another quintessential country that's used to point out like the problem with, you know, the suppression of women and gays there. And like, look at what the fuck the U.S. did there, like propped up the Shah. The, uh, the Shah was so goddamn brutal and Nazi-esque that the only organizing that was able to take place under the Shah was like in mosques. And that's why you saw the Islamic revolution happen. It's like communism was suppressed. Communism is what won in, in the 50s. <laughs> like, look at Afghanistan. I mean, it's, it's just so 
unbelievably hypocritical and short-sighted to not understand the long-term consequences and effects of imperialism and then just to use and exploit like what the circumstances have been out of like the bloodshed of what the U.S. empire has done to wreak havoc around the world to these countries. And you just look at somewhere like Iran and isolate it and you're like, well, you know, being gay is illegal. And it's like, how did all of this happen? How did all this happen? The Pulse shooting comes to mind as kind of one of the most egregious, and I don't want to say propaganda campaign. It was obviously a horrific massacre that was targeting queer and non-binary people in this gay nightclub. And it was a really traumatic incident. But of course, the U.S. empire and its propagandists um, used it to push Islamophobia. Did you feel like that event was particularly egregious? And was there like a turning point at that time to really hone in on this, Ryan? Or was it just kind of like just another thing that you were already realizing was part of this trend? Yeah, um, I think that that in particular really illuminated to me how cynical the people were that exploit exploited that tragedy. Because like, obviously, I was it's really sad and scary that someone shot up a gay nightclub, of course. But it's no reason to advance Islamophobia in the U.S. And I know that there are queer and trans Muslims. I, I just don't. I don't get the hyper focus on Islam there. I mean, I personally had really awful experiences with the church that I went to growing up. So it's obviously not um, specific to Islam. I know that. I know there were a lot of uh, really bigoted Jewish, uh, religious Jewish folks in Israel. So, so yeah, I, I really didn't fall for that, but I think it definitely, um, heightened my awareness of how these issues can be seized on by all the wrong actors. Yeah, like this hyper focus on other countries. And it's kind of like you were talking about this Orientalism, this American exceptionalism, like, well, we're great. Now we just spread our Western democracy and like queer rights around the world. And it's like, well, wait a minute. We actually, first of all, we don't have democracy. Second of all, we don't have a national gay marriage There's dozens of states, I would argue the vast majority of states, it's probably very dangerous to be open and out as a queer non-binary person. I mean, good God, look at the fucking discriminatory laws that are in place against trans people in this country. Like, you literally will lose your job, your housing. I mean, this is all very new development. Like, Ryan, we were talking recently about how, like, even Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, like, supporting gay marriage may seem culturally acceptable because of how entertainment and culture has forced this political shift. But it was very, very controversial m- mere years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that neoliberalism has really distorted who we view as, like, real and genuine quote-unquote allies, right? So when the human rights campaign, which is seen as like the premier LGBTQ mainstream group in the U.S., is honoring Raytheon and Jeff Bezos, I think we need to take a step back and <laughs> and ask ourselves, who is an ally? When people are saying like, yes, queen to Hillary Clinton when she didn't support gay marriage in what, like 2010 or 2008? <laughs> it, like that is, are we seriously 
rehabilitating her image and acting like she's almost like one of us. It's just the bar is so low and the way that like neoliberal um, just notions of like solidarity are so empty and so meaningless it's really dangerous because it makes me feel unsafe. It makes me feel like people don't know how to actually be in solidarity with others, how to actually, um, you know, the whole uh, term ally at this point feels really meaningless to me. It feels like, mm-hmm. you know, who who is an ally really? Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. Israel our ally? <laughs> no, that's a really good point. I mean, it's it's almost like, you you render these terms meaningless at a certain point when you when they get folded into this sort of quasi imperialistic neoliberal framework. It's almost the same way that the word anti semitism is thrown around these days, where it's rendered meaningless if you're actually concerned about anti semitism and you're calling people who protest against Israel anti semites. I mean, you're yep. the term just becomes completely meaningless at that point. And, you know, this idea of being an actual gay ally or an ally to marginalized people gets rendered meaningless when this is all being exploited by these imperialist, you know, entities. But how did you uh, get kicked off of Grindr? <laughs> I, this, is, this is what Abby told me. So I wanted to ask yeah. you, what, what happened there? What forces were involved in making that happen? And also, Israel was putting Hasbro cartoons, apparently, on Tinder during... Um, and, and they were doing this as fake profiles on yep. Tinder during Operation Protective Edge in 2014. That sounds insane. So yeah. comment on both of those things. What what happened to you on Grindr? Yeah, so on Grindr, I literally just had a photo of myself and then one of those like Facebook filter things that you can put on a profile picture that like just has like a message, you know, and the message on mine was free Palestine. And so my photo was just that photo that had the sticker thing on it. And then I get this notification saying that account banned, your account has been banned for violating our guidelines or terms of service. So even to this day, when I try logging on to that account on Grindr, it says that I'm banned. So I had to make a whole new account. Not that that's a huge deal, but it's just ridiculous. I don't know what forces were at play. I do know that the founder of Grinder is Israeli. And <laughs> that could have played a role in it, just like having these Zionist instincts. But yeah, I was I was really creeped out by that. And my friend, when we were in Jerusalem, she had um, like free Palestine in her bio on Tinder and she was suspended. So it's just, yeah, I, I think that honestly, so many of these LGBTQ spaces have been totally co-opted by Zionists. There's even this ridiculous um, situation where uh, Brand Israel in April 2010 launched Israeli pride in San Francisco. So it wasn't even a grassroots movement in San Francisco of like queer and trans Israeli people living there, but an event totally funded and administered by the Israeli government. That is just so, so fake. And then it really makes me think that these apps and all of these online, we already know how 
how people call Israel startup nation. And it has this reputation of being like on par with Silicon Valley. So yeah, it really makes me feel like these apps are just dominated by people who have like very Zionist ties or instincts because I don't see why a photo with just a stamp that says free Palestine on it would warrant like being banned for over a year now. No, it's disgusting. If you had a if I support Israel stamp, obviously that would not happen to you. Oh it's yeah, and really sick. So many people I see like on Tinder and Grinder who have pictures like from Birthright, and I'm just like, all right. Oh yeah, or like decked out in IDF military gear, holding like a giant semi-automatic weapon. Like that's <laughs> exactly. totally fucking cool, dude. That's Ryan. totally cool, I, dude. Oh. I I remember in 2014 reporting when Operation Protective Edge was going on that. Israel was literally putting Hasbro cartoons on Tinder posing as profiles, like as dating profiles. So you would swipe right and see those infamous cartoons of like, this is what Hamas does to protect their missiles or whatever. Like, don't you think that the IDF or whatever, like whatever lobbying organization was doing that should be banned for life, like for abusing the platform or whatever. But it's just like, that's, that's how much the propaganda was permeating that they were actually going to Tinder to do that. That is Where's incredible, that $26 Ryan. $26 million going, you know? Like that's right. $26 million that's going to shady online operations. You know, we already know that Israel has like an anti-BDS app. We already know about Canary Mission. Mm-hmm. Like there's a whole apparatus of actors and organizations that try to come at anyone who's in solidarity with Palestinians. Yeah, a lot of surplus cash being pumped into a lot of this uh, disinfo campaign, correcting the record and spreading this propaganda. Let's shift over to the U.S. because secondary to Israel, the U.S. has adopted a lot of pinkwashing techniques and tactics. You know, I feel like as we were mentioning, I mean, the trend of identity politics and just like neoliberalism was really honed in under Obama, having this really important symbol, symbol of progressivism, the first African-American president. It seemed like people just became more obsessive with identity, more excluding the struggles of the working class, and just hyper-focused on like individualism. And I feel like during this time, maybe it was even before that, but I feel like during Obama, especially like corporations started to adopt LGBTQ advertising. Um, more accepting of queer people. I, we started to hear really feel-good stories about progressive corporations having gay CEOs or women CEOs or CEOs that were people of color. And then, like, of course, there's the U.S. military. Um, as you mentioned, this tie-in with Human Rights Campaign, praising Raytheon, and all of these defense contractors that probably sponsor gay pride parades, you know, um, it's worth mentioning that the U.S. military is the largest employer of trans people. So talk about just pinkwashing in the U.S. and under U.S. militarism specifically. And like, what are the contradictions there? Right. So, yeah, I think that there was a lot of superficial progress made under Obama as it relates to LGBTQ issues. You know, he repealed Don't Ask, Don't Tell and gay marriage was like passed under the Obama administration. It gets better. Do you remember that? Yeah, yes, exactly. Which Dan Savage participated in. Exactly. So all of these figures are like ruling class figures. And the basically what we get is just like support 
and solid quote unquote solidarity for LGBTQ people, but on the terms of the ruling class. So there's no, you know, we want universal health care. Um, that's that's a queer and trans issue. You know, I pay $65 every single month with with health insurance for an HIV preventative medication. And mm-hmm. we want universal health care. We don't we want to we want that for free. You know, um, places like Cuba and even East Germany in the 1980s offered gender confirmation surgery for free. That is an LGBTQ issue. But we don't have we I know so many trans people who have had to uh, to look at GoFundMe to be to have their surgery funded. And and yeah, the whole issue of queer and trans people in the military, it's kind of a distraction in the sense that, you know, that trans military ban under Trump became this huge issue, particularly for neoliberals. And I'm not saying that we don't want to be equal under the law, but these aren't the institutions that are liberatory. We we shouldn't be focusing mm-hmm. on being included into a death machine as as like the barrier that we're trying to transcend, you know? <laughs> like it's just it's sad that it's been co-opted by these figures who have really confused people into thinking that like queer and trans liberation is being a CEO or being an ICE agent or being an imperialist soldier. Um, And yeah, it's just been seized upon by people who are not genuinely committed to the liberation of not just LGBTQ people in the U.S., but elsewhere. And that's really where these people fall short. Um, They don't understand that there are queer and trans people in Gaza or in Iran um, and that our solidarity should be with them. And why the hell are we honoring Raytheon? Why why the hell are we honoring um, Jeff Bezos? Um, And these are the the organizations that take up the most space and that get like recognition by people like Obama and Hillary Clinton. And then people have those. I even had one of the human rights campaign stickers on my car, the like equality Equality sign. Equality symbol, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for like two weeks and then I was like oh shit they're actually bad but um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like I, uh, a recent study by the Society for Social Work and Research found that trans service members were 29% more likely to report being sexually assaulted than straight and cis personnel and so that's just a, a really telltale sign that institutions like the U.S. military are really falling short and actually failing at supporting our community. But why should we be expecting them to to support our community, you know? Yeah. Um, one thing that was really striking that you mentioned that is also just really revealing is the fact that, like, if you're trans and you don't want to come out, you know, if you want gender reaffirming surgery, it's like you have to, like, come out publicly and ask for money. Yeah. Like, how fucked up is that? You know, oh. it's like exposing yourself to to your neighbors and friends and family and just being like, I want to transition. Like, that is a horrible thing to have to put someone through. It instead really, of just really giving is. them, Yeah, instead of just giving them, like, the hormone and whatever they need to transition, like, on their own terms. Um, and just lastly, it's such a good point that, like, how does the military treat LGBTQ people, like, internally? Like, the sexual assault statistics and... Also, aside from the trans military ban, just the fact that like gender 
non-conforming trans people and queer people are like targeted <clears throat> by state violence. You know, like you're talking about ICE. I mean, ICE detention. Look at how trans women and men are treated in these detention camps and facilities. Um, just abomination. You know, it's it's abysmal treatment of these people. Um, look at how Chelsea Manning was treated as a trans woman, um, who, by the way, Mayor Pete said should not have had clemency. Yep. So it's just, it's a hyper-masculine culture that I cannot even fathom how difficult it would be to be a queer or out person in this disgusting institution. But yeah, I mean, it doesn't take away from the need to, of course, fight for trans rights in the military, especially because they are employed by the military. And that's up to them, like, because of the severe economic disparity. Like we know that the U S military is largely recruiting people who are really poor, but yeah, I mean, it's just, there's so many levels of hypocrisy and cynicism there. Ryan, I'm curious. Um, I, I'm assuming you're familiar with Jamie Kerchick, who <laughs> is someone Abby and I are, were very familiar with completely, oh, yeah. completely unrelated to his pink washing. Cause Jamie Kerchick, for those who don't know, went on MSNBC and uh, smeared my sister in front of, you know, to like millions of people on MSNBC. But if I try to place myself in the shoes of being, you know, a young gay man, like if I was in my teens or early 20s, and I wasn't really that politically aware, I could see myself being believing his writings and the sort of framing that he was trying to put out about pinkwashing and getting sucked into that whole narrative. So I'm just wondering, at what point did you hear about him? Um, and like, did you already identify him immediately as being like a propagandist, you know, who was trying to exploit this very real issue, um, for sort of imperialistic ends or was it, was it different? Did you not realize he was doing that at first? And then did that, you know, come to you later? So at the time I actually didn't know about him and I found out about him through this podcast, but I feel like... (laughs) I feel like at the time I probably would have fallen for it. Like when I was just a generic neoliberal who really fell for these like superficial stunts, you know, mm-hmm. I I could see myself being like, oh, wow, he's standing up for LGBTQ people in Russia. But yeah, I think that people like him, I mean, he works with some of the, I mean, he is a neocon, but he works with some of the people who have backed some of the most homophobic and transphobic legislators in the country. And I also have like gay friends who have lived in Russia and they say that, yeah, there's definitely homophobia, transphobia, but um, there is everywhere. Again, I just feel like it's very consistent with the um, conversations that people have about Iran and Gaza, where they just weaponize the the um, treatment of queer and trans people in these places for imperialist means. And I don't think that there's anything more cynical than that. I, I mean, I can tell you from my own experience living in the U.S., when I was more of like an establishment hack, I was working in the Colorado State Senate when I was in college. Um, as a legislative intern, and I was sitting through committee hearings in Colorado about um, conversion therapy, and and it still wow. wasn't banned. Um, there were these, there were three Republicans on the committee, two Democrats, and all the Republicans voted to uphold conversion therapy and to not ban it. I think it was banned like last year, but when I was there, 
You know, they had people testifying who were saying, like, I used to be gay and then I was shocked into being not gay. (laughs) And and like, where is the conversation? Where is Jamie Kerchick talking about that? Tell me. I would love to know. I would love to hear him go on the mainstream media and speak up for people here who are subject to these horrible conversion therapy experiences. It's interesting you say that because as much as Jamie Kirchick pretends to be this like never Trumper and he doesn't really know where to fall politically now, like him and a lot of like neocons like Bill Crystal and stuff who pretend to dislike Trump because he's uncouth, right? But what's funny is you don't really hear them talk about like the fascist Christian right and how Trump is emboldening that specifically. You know, Mike Pence, Mike Pompeo, all of these Christian evangelicals who are fundamentalists apocalyptic fundamentalist Christians who are biblical, who believe that they're fulfilling some sort of biblical prophecy to bring the end of the fucking world. Um, you know, what What are their stance on gay people? Oh my um, God. Where's Jamie saw, Kirchick on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I saw Bill Crystal tweet the other day, I think yesterday, about how Pence would be better than Trump. And it's like, Good okay, God. Jamie Kirchick, isn't this your man? Like, let's let's have a conversation with him. He's <laughs> advocating for, like, the most rabidly homophobic politician in the country, one of them, to be president. So, Did you, did you see Bill is also in the bag now for Pete? Oh, he is. Wow. Yeah. Super surprised. Oh, good. He, wants the, he just wants the younger candidate to win, Ryan. <laughs> yeah. He's really see, into he's youngness. He's really into the gay Obama. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about the gay Obama. Um, your Twitter handle at queer a la mode. Everyone follow Ryan. He's a hilarious Twitter personality. Um, I'm him really right good now. insight. Yeah, you got to follow that shit now. But your name right now, you changed it from Empire Baby to Gaze Against Mayor Pete. <laughs> I heard someone perfectly summarize Pete Buttigieg to say that he is the Bank of America float at the gay pride parade. talk about talk about him in general why is your handle gaze against mayor p what do you think about him now that he's risen so much in the polls being promoted by the corporate media as like this highly brilliant progressive beacon for his queerness yeah i mean i just think he's such a despicable figure i think that he like as a queer person he's everything that i stand against and luckily i think a lot of people are also a lot of queer and trans people are seeing through him so in a january 31st morning consult national survey um bernie sanders was first among um gays with 34 percent support elizabeth warren was second at 19 percent, and mayor pete who would be the first LGBTQ president ever, was at 12%, which was less than Joe Biden. And I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, the material conditions that a lot of queer and trans people are living in here. So um, the UCLA's Williams Institute said the poverty rate for LGBTQ people is at 21.6%, which is higher than the 15.7% rate for straight people. So, you know, we want... We want healthcare. We don't want someone who wants Medicare for all who want it. Um, We want an end to imperialism because we understand that that's where money that could be going um, into healthcare and into other social programs to actually uplift marginalized people here. Right now, it's going to to bombing campaigns that uh, that Mayor Pete supports and that he like participated in um, when he was an occupying soldier, and. Yeah, I just think that I'm happy to see a lot of people fall, uh, 
like seeing through his shtick, but at the same time, it's really depressing that, you know, the the guy who's getting so much attention as like the first openly gay, like mainstream presidential candidate is is this guy who, you know, um, also has really close ties when he was mayor with the South Bend Police Department. And we know that, you know, the first pride was a, a riot, started as a riot against the police and that police are not um, friends or quote unquote allies of LGBTQ people. State violence is directed at higher rates towards LGBTQ people, towards um, unhoused people, and many of whom are LGBTQ. Yeah, I just think that it's really tragic that he is taking up so much space in the discourse when he's such a cynical and like nefarious figure. And not to compare like tiers of oppression here, but it is super interesting because he is just the perfect emblem of like the elite white quote unquote gay person that would be like, I could be at brunch right now kind of thing. Like if Trump didn't win, then everything would be fine. And he he just symbolizes like everything that's wrong, you know, like the perfect encapsulation of neoliberalism, like peak neoliberalism. It's like, who do you really ally with? Like the fact that he has no regard for people of color, no support from people of color. It's like, it just, it's offensive. It's offensive. And I can't imagine how offensive it is for a queer person to see this being used and tokenized and truncated to the point where it's just like, well, you should just like be super happy and supportive that you're going to be represented by potentially a gay president. Exactly. He's really the quintessential homo nationalist. And as Jasbir Poir said, like, he is domesticated. He is a domesticated homosexual body that provides ammunition to reinforce this U.S. project. You know, he's exactly that. He was groomed by the national security state. Do you think the national security state gives a shit about queer and trans people? Because I really don't. And, um, and, and corporations, too, you know, like, I mean, maybe the human rights campaign awarded uh, McKinsey with like best place to work, but I kind of doubt that it is for a, a place <laughs> that is really welcoming to to queer and trans people who aren't domesticated. Ryan, what what can you tell me about queers against Pete? If Pete became president, um, God forbid that happens. I mean, I hope that doesn't happen. But if that's the outcome that we're left with. Um, what kind of people would his policies harm in terms of like what he's proposing to do? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that so Queers Against Pete, actually, there was like an open letter that went around Twitter recently that has like over 2000 signatures now. Um, and it's, you can find it at queersagainstpete.com. And their letter just basically spells out that so many of the issues that um, impact disproportionately impact LGBTQ people like police violence, deportations, homelessness, unaffordable health care, economic inequality, imperialism. These are not things that he would address. I mean, if he does address them, I think that he'll side with the ruling class, with the people who want to exacerbate these issues. Um, and he has exacerbated them in his roles with McKinsey, with the U.S. military, and as mayor of South Bend. Yeah, I really have a lot of doubts and a lot of concerns about um, how his policies would obviously disproportionately impact the people who have been disproportionately impacted by all of these horrific problems that we need 
genuine liberatory solutions for, not neoliberal symbolic gestures towards. Very well. Brian Wentz, you are amazing. This was such a fascinating discussion. I gained so much knowledge from your insight. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to come on Media Roots Radio. Everyone follow Ryan Queer a la mode, Gaze Against Mayor Pete <laughs> on Twitter. Um, anything else you want to share, resources or anything, any last words, Ryan? Um, I just want to thank you two for actually doing so much to help me become like fully media literate. And I feel like that's actually something that a lot of people have to learn um, to be able to see through these types of manipulations and distortions, whether it's Israel or Mayor Pete, um, who is manufacturing these narratives and these stories and then how it's being absorbed just into the public consciousness. I really, really couldn't thank both of you enough for that. So thanks for having me on. Oh, that's really nice of you to say, Ryan. Yeah, thanks for coming on. This is a great discussion. Thanks so much, Ryan. You're the best. Be All right. Peace. Peace.